0: To quote Frank Herbert in Dune, things persist in not being what they seem. Because we're about to talk about the second part. The second part being Muad'Dib.
1: Things are not what they seem. Things
0: are not what they seem. Uh, so before we forget, because I know we're both excited to talk about this. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club Deep Cut
1: Dune Edition.
0: Uh, So if the entire first book was dedicated to introducing the players, um, giving us a character sheet for each player, Mm -hmm. and establishing the world in which we're operating, the level of intensity and subtlety and nuance that we're working with, the entire second book is where do all of our key players end up?
1: And more a lot of it is more uh, exposition and depth on the Fremen yes. and the Harkonnens.
0: It might e- might as well be called Meet the Fremen. Book two, Meet the Fremen. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, because we're we're out of... Um, What's the city they start in? Arakeen. Yeah, we're out of Arakeen. We're no longer in the palace. We are... We're on the streets. And by the streets, I mean out in the desert. And
1: and the actors on this stage have narrowed down to the Fremen and the Harkonnens.
0: Yeah. Yep. And the political maneuverings of all of them, including the Fremen, who we find out are not as um, passive in what is happening they're as they first as as seem.
1: Barbarous as primitive? Yes, as implied.
0: It's possible they may foster this perception hmm. because it acts as a kind of deflection shield to for quote them.
1: count fenring hmm. mm. oh my
0: god that whole section was so painful
1: it's hard to read
0: it's hard to read and then he mentions that their humming is part of a language like they have a secret language a, a humming language
2: mm-hmm.
0: but just listening to okay if you don't know what we're talking about you should have read the book first of all but count Fenring and his wife who is a bene Gesserit, His wife, even though Count Fenrig is a eunuch, which we talk about like every time. They're like Count Fenrig? Oh you mean the eunuch guy? Oh yeah, that guy? Well his wife and him go to Geedy Prime and they're having a conversation with the Baron and it's literally like, Oh, um hello How are you, Count? It's hard to read. Um, I'm, that's probably why no one's ever adapted him in that way, because right. it's like, oh, mm. it's like talking to Morla, and, the ancient one.
1: And I think it's partly, mm. I think he uses it partly to make him seem like not as cunning as he actually is.
0: I don't know, because every other time we see him, he talks like that a little, but definitely not like he does in this one. And it is pages and pages of, ah, mm. You might as well be a skeksy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hello, doke. Mm-hmm. God, it's annoying. It's it's hard. It's okay. Well, that's a tangent. Uh, we're not there yet, because poor Paul and his mom are stuck in this tent. They're waiting for Duke Duncan Idaho to come
1: and rescue them. Uh, they already found Duncan. No, Duncan died. Well, Duncan. No.
0: I, booked, I pulled a page out of your book, and I looked it up.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I skimmed through book two in preparation for this, and part of it was a scene where he mentions Duncan was with us in the yeah, vision. Yeah,
0: no sign of Duncan yet, none.
1: Right, that's where we start off, because we ended book one, they're crashed in the desert. They're
0: crashed in the desert, and they see a, um, a thopter coming for them. Right, and which it turns out it has Duncan in it, and so Duncan gave them. Well, they had all the stuff they needed, but they, Duncan was like, "Okay, set up your still tent, you know, get your still suits on, put on your still shoes, put on your still hat, all the still things, and hang out right here. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be back." And so they've been waiting.
1: And Jessica says, "How long did Duncan say to wait before we should leave because he'd have been compromised?" And yeah. Paul says. This long. Yeah. (laughs) Because
0: Paul is like, baby Paul is gone. And now we're Paul. The Duke. The Duke. Um, Because his dad's dead. He's the Duke. And they end up leaving the tent. He gets the tent out. They have these like, this technology to like, static hold the sand in place while he pulls stuff out.
1: Yeah, you. It makes the sand rigid.
0: Yeah. Because they get buried in a storm. And then they end up trying to escape, but Duncan finds them again, Duncan
1: with Liette, yeah, and as they're all packing up, yeah, to um to leave because Duncan implied if he wasn't back by now, it means he was captured right, and he could hold out from torture for this long, and so Paul's like, all right, he's not back that Let's means go. he was. He was caught. Yeah. He's being tortured right now. And right about now is when he would give in and reveal our location. So yeah. we got to go.
0: Yeah. So really this whole book two Muad'Dib is like, here's all the characters. Here's what happened to them. So Liet, we meet and then they, he tries to help them and then is immediately caught. And so they escape with the help of Liet and Duncan dies at the same time that Liet is caught. Okay. So check Duncan. At least is visibly mortally wounded, uh, presumed dead. Liette is caught. Check. The Duke is dead. Check. Paul. Long and, live
1: Le- the Duke. Long live
0: the Duke. Paul and Lady Jessica are on the run. We uh, also. They
1: get in the thopter that was in the
0: yes. ecological
1: f- facility. Right. It
0: was hidden there for this purpose, and they end up flying into the storm. Liette's like, go directly into the storm. It's yeah. your only He's like, hope of like, fly high room.
1: over it. Glide down through it. Yeah, We've done this stealing Thopters from the Harkonnens. uh, And they don't think it's possible.
0: Right. And then woven in through all of this is, um, oh my God, you guys, did you know how badass the Fremen are? Because when we go to talk to Tufer, Tufer has like 20 men left of his his entire group of men, 300 or more men. He has like 20 left. Because the Sardaukar are so tough. And then this Fremen guy shows up and he's like, oh, sup guys, we're, we're here to help. Maybe, I don't know, like, let's negotiate. This is the part where they're talking about water. Like, no, no, this is a water question.
1: Yeah, this is a really good kind of explication of the completely different viewpoint of uh, the most important resources in the group. Right. Where... Tufor is like, my people are my most important resource. Yeah. And the Fremen guy is like, water is the most important resource.
0: Water is, yeah. Your
1: men should appreciate when and recognize and be able to decide when their water needs to go back to the tribe.
0: Yeah. Oh, you have wounded? Okay. Well, let's go take care of them and then we can get going. Who can carry all of their water? And Tufer's like, well, no, no, well, I need help with my wounded. And he's like, No, this is a water question. Is it time for them to give up their water? Kind of sounds like it is. And so they're finally, Tufor catches on that, like, oh, oh, okay. He's talking about, we're not equivocating. He's having one conversation, I'm having another conversation, and they finally get together. And he's like, no, I owe my water to the Duke. And he's like, oh, your water does not belong to you. That is a different matter. Okay. So that's a different, that's a whole other. Ball game. Let's change up how we're talking about this.
1: <laughs> so so Thufir's like, oh, so you're going to help us? And he's like, "Uh, yeah, did I fucking stutter?
0: Yeah. He's like, I said. It was
1: in, I said, this is a water question. Okay. Yeah. Your water belongs to the Duke. Okay. Uh, that answers all of your questions yeah. without actually answering. Yeah.
0: Your, your water questions. is not your own. You owe your water to somebody else. Well, then it is my I am honor bound to get your water to the guy who owns
1: it. Right, especially given that Liette had told the Fremen to cooperate with the Atreides. Yes,
0: and this is when he's talking about the Sardaukar, and they're like, "Well, have you encountered any Sardaukar?" And he was like, "Oh, those dudes? Yeah. I oh, hope.
1: yeah. It's been great. We're having an awesome time yeah. fighting the Sardaukar. It's like, wow, they're really they're really good fighters. Yeah. It's been. This has been." It's like, really been, entertaining.
0: Yeah. They killed a couple of us, but uh, they were kind of dumb anyway. So it's fine. Like, they, you know, any it was a reason, bit of a
1: challenge, but
0: uh, mm, it's all right. Yeah. We, we can handle it. Oh, this. yeah.
1: We killed the Sardaukar. Yeah, he's like, like it's ca- hard. I,
0: what, like, it's hard. I killed like 10 on the way here. And Thufar's like, oh, shit. We really did. We, we guessed it right. They are desert power. Because the Sardaukar, who are the most feared force in the entire world, in the entire galaxy, galaxy. Uh, the Fremen are like, oh, yeah, those dudes, Pfft, whatever. No problem. Um, but then they get they get attacked. And this is when Tufer gets kidnapped, um, taken prisoner by the Harkonnens. Everybody else dies. Tufer gets taken prisoner. And Tufer's ultimate destination is he's going to work with the Harkonnens. And we get kind of a, a discussion with the Baron where he's like, okay, give Tufer this poison. Don't tell him. Feed him the antidote every day. And that way, if he ever betrays us, he dies. <sighs> Sold. Easy. He's like, I needed a Mentat. Tufur's a Mentat. This sounds like a like a great idea. Let's do this. And Tufur is really doing this because he believes that the Lady Jessica betrayed the Atreides. And so he is hoping that he will be able to get revenge for the Atreides and his desire for revenge outweighs his hatred of the Harkonnens because everybody that the duke surrounded himself with have a history with the Harkonnens. Tufer does. Gurney does. All of them do. And then we go to Gurney because Gurney, Gurney got abandoned. I mean, nobody helped Gurney out. Gurney had to help himself out and he's gotten out and now he goes and talks to the smugglers
1: yeah, Gurney had been the one that went and made contact with the smugglers.
0: Anyway, and yeah. And
1: brought the one smuggler to the, the big complicated dinner. Dinner,
0: yeah, the dinner scene. And so he knows this guy because his he knew his dad. And this guy's dad died in the attack. But we have a whole, like, all right, um, you know, my loyalty is with, like, my people and my money and my company and if you can get behind that Gurney Halleck, you you can come and work with me. You're a cool dude. I like you. You can come work for us if you want to. We'll protect you. We'll help you. And he's like, just so you know, eventually I'm going to use this as a way to like kill the Baron. And the the smuggler's like, that sounds like your business. I'm not really interested in it. As long as you're working for me while you're working for me, sold. So now we know where Twofer goes. We know where Gurney goes. We know what happened to Duncan Idaho. And really the only people
1: that we have to sort of... And we know what happened to Yui.
0: Yeah, well, we know what happened to Yui. And we know what happened to the Duke. So the only players in the game that are left is Jessica and Paul, who are currently presumed missing. And then we go and talk to the Baron Harkonnen a lot. For the whole first section, we got a little bit of Baron. We get a lot of Baron in in Book 2. More so even than in Book 3. And the Baron, we're really talking about, like, his ultimate goal... What is he trying to achieve? He had he had dune. He voluntarily relinquished dune in order to move leto out of his place of power so right. that he could crush him.
1: And in cooperation with the in emperor, cooper-
0: hoping, I think, that the that the cooperation with the emperor would give him leverage over the emperor.
1: Right, because the biggest the Landsraad has enough authority, enough clout that if they all go together, they could take the emperor down.
0: Right. So he can't have them rallying against him.
1: Right. And so Shaddam wants to take out Leto because Leto has the, a chance of uniting the Lonsrod and taking him down. Right. So Shaddam wants Leto taken out.
0: The baron's willing to get his hands dirty
1: and the baron wants Leto taken out also yeah because they have this canley feud vendetta thing and so they decide to work together so the so Shaddam commits like huge numbers of Sardaukar, which are exclusively imperial troops. combat resources yes. that are identifiable, easily identifiable. If
0: they wear their uniforms. If
1: they wear their uniforms. Yeah. Or if you pay attention. And in the way they fight. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but the Lanzarad, the convention, the great convention, um, would rebel against Shaddam if they found out. Shaddam was committing, res- like, Sardaukar to attack one of them. Yeah, if he was to one actively
0: working against one of the houses. And
1: so they explain that that's the greatest fear of each great house. Yeah. Is that Shaddam will send Sardaukar against each of them individually and wipe them out. And if they find out that Shaddam did that, that would be the end for Shaddam. Yeah. So that's the leverage that Harkonnen gets on Shaddam is that, that he
0: thinks, yeah.
1: That he thinks is like, oh, I can blackmail him with this. Yeah. It'll... Because if he doesn't go along with what I want to do, I will let everybody else in the great houses know that Shaddam gave me, you know, 10 legions of Sardaukar yeah. to take out Atreides. Right.
0: And so what we see a lot in this is the political maneuvering around that, because that and- when Count Fenrig comes to see him on Gaty Prime, that's what the Baron wants to talk about. He's like, so what's the what's the emperor going to give me to keep me silent? And Count Fenrig's like, silence about what? What happened? What, what would you talk about, Baron? And the Baron's like, you know, the Sardacar that he gave me. And the Count's like, oh, that's a horrible accusation.
1: I, can't believe, I, like I mm, can't believe you would say something like that.
0: I can't believe you would say something like that. And the the baron is like, "Shit." Cuz he got played.
1: Yeah, and he didn't he didn't prepare by I guess like taking evidence. Uh, yeah. Verifiable evidence that he could prove to everybody. Right. That the emperor gave him Sardaukar. Right. So now the baron's like, well, shit.
0: Well, shit. He's actually in a far more precarious position than he was before. Because he worked against a- another member of the lands rod. And he got away with it. And now nobody is going to be... Like, nobody's going to trust him at all. Right. For Which any reason.
1: One of the things... One of his objectives with this whole strategy was... To intimidate the other great houses. Yeah. So that they wouldn't act against him. Okay. It worked. But he also doesn't have leverage over Shaddam. Right. So now he's isolated himself. He's ostracized himself from the rest of the great houses. And now the emperor has some reason To take out the Baron, too. Right. Because the Baron is the only one that knows that there were, like, about the Sardaukar agreement. Yeah.
0: And literally, the only reason nobody has ever acted against the Baron until this point is because of his control over the spice. Because he who controls the spice controls the universe. And at the moment, the Baron controls the spice. But only if he can keep it coming from... Arrakis in the quantities that everyone wants it coming off of Arrakis, and right now, uh, it's not everything's in shambles. He needs to reestablish order and like start up the spice flow as soon as possible because it cost like gen- fifty
1: years of the full output of Arrakis.
0: Yeah, to get that many Sardaukar troops to the planet.
1: Yeah, because the guild charges. Exorbitantly higher rates for troop transport versus like regular transport,
0: right? Because it's a way of controlling the amount of conflict in the universe, in everything that happens. But yeah, it, this was an exorbitantly expensive venture to get Lido out of the way, and. They do I mean the Baron really thought he was going to benefit more from this, and now he has to maneuver things so that he still will right So
1: now that this gambit is done, the Baron needs to get back right away, squeezing as much money out of arrakis as possible
0: right and he has a two two prong plan for that, which I think is really interesting.
1: yes. this is where we start to see a lot of his cunning and depth as a character yeah preparing and securing his legacy
0: right because he has Raban everybody calls the beast Raban. We get no context for this. They're just like, oh, you mean the beast
2: Raban?
1: And they do describe him a little bit as <clears throat> similar in form to the Baron yeah in that uh, he's fat.
0: yes, he mm-hmm. is yes
1: and he's not pretty
0: right. Yeah um which is why we're supposed to be like ooh, you can tell he's a bad guy. Because uh, he's ugly. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think it's important at this moment to pause and address some of the 1960s ness of this book. Uh, yes, it's very binary. Uh, we're we're really only talking in masculine and feminine terms. We're not talking on a spectrum. Uh, this is extremely whitewashed. I mean, everybody.
1: Well, okay. Let's talk about the whole white savior narrative. Right. This book. Is a white savior narrative.
0: Yes, uh, 100%.
1: But it is a white savior narrative that is a critique of white savior narratives. Yeah,
0: it's a subversion of the trope.
1: And the subversion of that trope is oh, yeah, here's what up front looks like a white savior narrative. But in the rest of the series, like I guess Dune, the first book, is a white savior story. Right. But the series of the six books completely undermines it. Yeah. Here's this white savior narrative that results in catastrophe.
0: In catastrophe. Yeah. And really just that the white savior narrative is just that it's a story that everyone is told by the missionary protectiva because that way they always have a role to fill that the only reason this white savior is possible is because of brainwashing of the culture, because of the spread of a invented religion that would allow anyone coming onto the planet that had enough knowledge of what was seeded on this planet to take power.
1: Right. Manipulation yeah, at it's a, a societal level. Right.
0: The only reason this, the white savior exists is because of manipulation of the society and a very granular level. Great. Thank you, Frank Herbert, because this really could have just been, he's a hero. You can tell he's a hero because he's fulfilling all of these prophecies. Instead, he's like, yeah, he's fulfilling these prophecies, but that in and of itself is a malicious action because he is using deliberate manipulation of these people to deliberately manipulate these people to use them for his own ends. He becomes their savior figure. He becomes their messiah. He becomes their prophet. So that they will throw themselves at the Harkonnen, for him. Right. And to Paul's credit, he's not like happy about it, but does he do it anyway? Yeah. Yep. yep he yep. does it anyway. Um, who's the real bad guy? And in this? he,
1: he recognizes very early. But okay. In this whole story, yeah. Paul effectively is a pawn. Yeah. He recognizes fairly early, I think in this section, in book two of Dune, that the Jihad is almost inevitable. Mm -hmm. And the Jihad is a direct consequence of the mythology planted by the Missionaria Protectiva. It is the Inevitable emergent outcome of the kind of mythology that they planted here. Yes, and Paul recognizes that if he dies here, uh, it's still going to happen. Right. If he lives here, it's it's still going happen. to happen. Yep. And so the only, I guess the, to his credit, and uh, you know, as a pawn in this whole story, he does his best with the amount of agency that he has to get as much wiggle room in the, in, the inevitable, inevitable outcome, outcome yeah. to mitigate the horror of it as much as possible.
0: Right. He says it has to be fast and swift to minimize casualties. That's yep. the best he can do, is he can make it so so precipitous and so brutal that it happens immediately any, it happens effectively and then it's finished and that so we don't any
1: conflict any conflict where people are going to be hurt he shows up his people show up with such overwhelming force that they there are a minimum of casualties and then immediate surrender yeah and you know just like canley is designed to minimize danger to bystanders yeah that's basically Paul's goal with the whole jihad thing that happens in the next few books.
2: Yeah. Yep. And
0: so we talked about the two-pronged thing that Baron Harkonnen is trying to manipulate here. And one of those is the Beast Raban. And so he's going to send the Beast Raban to Arrakis to squeeze as much as can possibly be squeezed. He's supposed to terrorize the population. He basically, knowing he has a tendency towards violence, he gives him free reign. He doesn't tacitly, he doesn't explicitly tell him to torture the population. So that
1: he can maintain actual deniability. Right,
0: because you have to maintain actual deniability. But he tacitly tells him, no reigns. You do what you want.
1: You have to meet your quotas.
0: You meet the quota. I don't care what you do as long as you meet the
1: quota. And this Plan w- was always his plan, yeah. Because he knows that a populace that admires its leader is easier to control, right? Than one that you're controlling with fear, right? There's fear, but then there's also fear and respect, right? And so he wants long-term to have Arrakis led by somebody who the people don't actively hate and despise to their core, right? So. He was going to give Arrakis, as a fief, whatever, yeah. to Piter, and then he was going to let Piter grind them down for a while, and then send in Fade, his favorite favorite nephew. Yeah, his Fade chosen successor. His
0: Na Baron. Yeah, uh, and we meet more of Fade. We don't. We get a little bit of Raban. Mostly, it's the Baron being like, "Are you?" Were you dropped at birth? Like what is wrong with you?
1: Right. We, we get the scenes with the Baron and Raban, and he's kind of like giving dropping a bunch of hints about yeah. his plans and seeing if
0: Raban can pick can, up what he's dropping out, yeah. And
1: and come to some conclusions. Right, and he's not. He's absolutely yeah, not. No,
0: no. Raban's like, okay, sounds good. And he's like, no, 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 no. Did you get what else out don't make me say it don't make me say the quiet part out loud and this is the part where he's like I'm surrounded by idiots if I threw they're such chickens if I threw out sand I, and told them it was green they'd peck at it he's like I, you, I, why am I surrounded by idiots I mean is the baron always the smartest person in the room maybe not Does the baron always hmm. believe he is the smartest person in the room Yes
1: is he the smartest person in the room? Most of the time. Most of the time. But is that because he only lets stupid people into the room?
0: It's that's, that's or a very good observation. Also,
1: most of the time, he's the only person in the room. Right. Because he's a lonely person. Because
0: he's driven everybody else away.
1: Which is a a side effect of being like literally a psychopath. Right. Or I guess he's a sociopath. He's a sociopath. He can yeah. he can uh, mask a bit. Right. Whereas in contrast the duke surrounds himself with people that in their area of expertise are way more skilled than he is. Yeah. And he trusts them. Yes. And he's able to accomplish a lot more than the baron. Yeah. with less work.
0: Which is very much what the duke what duke Paul emulates. But Fade, this is where Fade has that battle with the slave, where he's supposed to be drugged. He's supposed to have gotten that drug that turns his skin orange, so that he'll be, like, easy to beat.
1: Make him a berserker.
0: Yeah. Um. This is like a, this is a old Roman Colosseum style thing, where he's supposed to be killing his hundredth slave in the arena. To prove
1: his prowess as a leader.
0: Right. Except this guy's drugged.
1: The and game's rigged. The
0: game is rigged. The, the points are made up and the game doesn't matter. Um, except this guy is not drugged and Fade knows it. And he's been given a shield, but the shield only works on part of his body. And he has been given a code word. He's been like programmed with a code word that will make him hesitate just in case. Um, and so he fights this guy. And it's kind of metaphorical where it's like they think they're fighting an opponent. Who they have crippled, and that it will make the victory easy, but he didn't realize the strength of the loyalty that the Atreides command.
1: The strength of the human spirit.
0: Because this guy is an Atreides soldier, and he's literally carved—he's carved the Atreides symbol into the hawk his skin. Or the yeah. eagle. I think it's a hawk. Um, he is—he's already—he's carved it into his skin with a knife. And so Fade so is like... So that
1: everybody will know who he is.
0: Yeah, so Fade's like, oh shit, I didn't realize that. that so this is hardcore. a little bit like they thought they'd won. They really thought victory was absolutely assured. But is it? Is it possible for absolute loyalty and true, true devotion to overcome the rigged game? That's the question this is posing to us as the reader for the rest of the, for the rest of everything. And this is also a moment for Count Fenrig's wife to seduce Fade Rautha and get a baby out of it. So at least they'll have that bloodline if they need it.
1: Right. Because the Bene Gesserit recognized that, oh, shit. Yeah. Paul, like Duke Leto was the bloodline we needed to preserve. We had the, the Harkonnen bloodline and the Atreides bloodline. And these two houses are yeah. both like the most powerful of the great houses. And is that because the leaders of these houses are the culmination of thousands of years of this selective breeding program to yeah. make like a superhuman? Right. Maybe uh but either way we have these two bloodlines that you know are the most powerful houses because they are so powerful and so competent they're safe right nobody's going to kill them so the Bene Gesserit are like okay cool we got these two bloodlines now we just need to connect these two bloodlines right okay we're doing good <laughs> uh Yeah, Jessica had a son. Well, shit. Shit. That mixes up our plan a little bit, but we can work with this. It'll just delay it by one generation. Yeah, it's fine. We just need to get a daughter on the Harkonnen side. And then...
0: Then we can get this back together.
1: Yeah. Which it... But then Paul is assumed dead. Yeah. And so the Bene Gesserit are like, well, shit. If the Atreides, you know, probably considered more powerful than the Harkonnens... If the Atreides can be wiped out like this, and that was, you know, half of our entire, like, uh, breeding line that's required for this whole program to work, what about the Harkonnens?
0: Yeah, we need to how, cash this.
1: How are we We going- need a backup. Yes, we yeah, need a backup. We
0: need a backup. So we didn't do that that's for the That's why other Fenring ones, so is shit. here. Yeah. Yeah, he's here to talk to the Baron and- let him know that the the um, emperor still thinks he's pretty much an insect insect that should be squished under his boot because the baron really thought now they were going to be on an equal playing field. And sorry, psych, not fucking happening. And also, to get a little bit of a little bit of Harkonnen DNA, so we can keep that a if we need it for sample. later. Which it now falls on me to mention that the lady Jessica is the Baron Harkonnen's daughter.
1: And the baron, the makes, Deseret know this. Which
0: makes Paul his grandson. Yes. So if Paul had been a woman and had been married to Fade Rautha, that would have been two first cousins marrying each other.
1: But if, I think their intention there was a concentration.
0: I, yeah. Line. I mean, I guess. I'm just pointing yeah. out. That's, a, that's awfully close. Which they mention they mentioned that sometimes the the reason that the Bene Gesserit don't know who they belong, who their parents are is because they may be asked to partner with someone who is directly related to them and they don't want that to create any cognitive dissonance so the easiest way to right. get around that they is to just They need to, to, to concentrate
1: the genetic line sometimes you have to
0: Yeah, sometimes you got to do, a, do little a little incest inbreeding. Yeah, if you want to move your eugenics program forward. Yeah. And now we finally get introduced to the Fremen as actual characters. We've had the nebulous Fremen. We've had the, we don't know where they live. We don't know how they live. We don't know how many of them there are. Oh, maybe there's only a few. Maybe there's millions. But now we're finally like, okay, here's a face. Now we're going to give the Fremen a face. And that first one that we meet, really, is Stilgar. And as much as I love Gurney Halleck, I think I love Stilgar more. Yeah. Because Stilgar is such a good, noble, nuanced character. And the whole Fremen culture is just the antithesis of the Lonsrod culture. Because as much as it's about subtlety there and subterfuge and manipulation, here it is like we don't have time for that. Wasting your breath wastes water. So let's just say what we mean. Because...
1: And it's the Fremen culture is almost a refinement of what Duke Leto Atreides was raising Paul to be. Right. Which is just super honorable, super practical. Right. And hyper competent. Right. Whereas the entire rest of the like elite society in this galaxy is all about like selfish manipulation of everyone else for your own benefit. Right. And lots of hedonism and just flaunting your riches. Duke Leto wanted to do something different.
0: Yeah. Your water belongs to the tribe.
1: Right. Yeah. And so, I think that's why Paul was such a like good fit with the Fremen right. is because most of the underlying values between the Atreides household and the Fremen culture are exactly the same. Right. It's just the practices that are different. Right.
0: We don't, we don't do poison because if I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you to your face. I'm right. going to call you out. And we're going to do this.
1: And so Paul doesn't have to completely reform large sections of his personality right. to fit in with the Fremen and get the gist of what's going on. He already does.
0: He already and he gets it immediately. He is totally immersed, totally absorbing all 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 at once right away because they they crash because they fly through the they end up going above the storm where the the wind is still high, but the particles are so fine, they can't really... And the pressure is so low. Yeah. And so they crash, and they end up trying to just travel. They're just trying to get outside the belt where the Harkonnen patrols might be. And they end up falling in with a group of Fremen. And this is uh, Sietj Tabir. Is yeah. it Tabir? It's, Tabir or Tabor. Yeah, is the one that still guards the head of. So they're kind of autonomous groups of Fremen. And they are all in like a loose coalition, coalition, kind of like the Iroquois nation used to be. So when, before we came here, the native tribes in North America were part, many of them were part of like a group. They were autonomous tribes, but they were part of the Iroquois
1: But they nation. were cooperative. Yeah, they
0: were cooperative. Yeah. So that's what we, we have, cooperative, but autonomous tribes.
1: Semi-nomadic groups.
0: Yeah. Okay. And Stilgar is the leader of this one. And immediately, Stilgar's like, meh, this. let's just kill them and take their water. Well,
1: he says, the boy, I made a promise.
0: To Liette, yes. To
1: Liette.
0: I would keep the boy.
1: But she's too old to learn our ways. She will just slow us down and hold us back.
0: Yeah. And so the Lady Jessica's like, oh, you thought. You thought. And so she um, bests Stilgar immediately. In hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. While Paul's like, Peace! And he dips. He, like, knocks over Jamis, 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 and takes his gun. It's really a gun. And then he heads up, and he's, like, waiting above, like, sniper position for his mom to work this out. Yeah. And then we have our first, like, okay, all right, this is a fulcrum moment. Everything hinges on this moment. If Lady Jessica cannot talk her way out of this, she's going to die. And Paul will be all alone.
1: And Paul doesn't know enough about the missionaria protectiva to make use of it. Yeah. And, you know, secure his position.
0: Right. So I got to be the one that talks my way through this. And so she does. She convinces him. She's like, did you like how I did that? I could teach you all how to do that. The weirding way. (laughs) I could teach you the weirding way. And they're like, okay, yeah. Cool. Why didn't you just lead with that? You could have just said, "I'm a total badass," and we would have been like, "Fuck yes!" and let you join the let you join the group. Right.
1: Right. And from his perspective, he's like, "Ah, she doesn't have anything of value to add. Yeah. To our, to our siege. So, you know, Uh, get rid of her. Bye, Felicia. And yeah, you know, the boy. I made a promise, and he shows potential.
0: That's all right. Okay. Yeah
1: cool i i can i can put up with that amount of inconvenience but really all she had to do is explain the value that she could bring yeah and he's like oh that's all you like i was only it's not personal right jessica i was only going to have you killed and take your water uh, for practical reasons
0: right you just had to lead with the fact that but you if were you, like cool i if mean if you said on.
1: hey i can teach you how to fight in a way that will make you literally unstoppable oh okay yes. Yeah, yeah. so you come old. along too i can put up with the inconvenience of you know this
0: yeah we can teach you the way woman. of the sand if you can teach us this way of the yeah of now the, now there's
1: an exchange of value for value
0: right which we're they're like hell yeah oh go ahead son you can come down and paul doesn't move and finally jessica's like it's okay paul you can come down and that's when he comes down and we find out that and
1: chani's already snuck up on him
0: yeah we find out chani's just been up there like yeah, I wasn't gonna let you kill anybody in my tribe. Sorry, son. And he's like, "Oh my god, Chani, yes." <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which she says, "Hot as
0: I dreamed her, yes."
1: Just like, just like we led with, "Hey guys, yeah, I know you're just starting this story. Yui is the traitor." Yeah, do with that what you will. We've also been leading with, "Oh yeah, Paul." Yeah, he's going to end up with Chani.
0: Yeah, Chani and him, they're going to hook up.
1: They're <laughs> going to be an item. It's going to be a like real substantial relationship. Yeah. And, But they haven't met yet. Right. And yep. so he sees her and he has literally years of these like prophetic dreams. He's
0: known
2: her.
1: And he just had that awakening moment where he sees like the landscape of the future and all of the time that he would spend with Chani and how important she would be to him personally and to the whole tribe. And then he sees her and he's like, "Whoa!" and Chani's like, who's this fucking skinny kid? I
0: know. What's up? What's up, man boy. They're like, what's up boy, man, city boy, city boy. You think you're going to get with this? Nice try. Yeah right, and then we cut to Liet because poor Liet has um, been captured. This
1: is a really good scene.
0: Yeah, and the Harkonnen Baron Harkonnen's like, well, he worked with the Atreides. We gotta kill him. And they were like, well, you can't kill him because he he like he works for the Emperor. He did not work right. for us. Of
1: course, he cooperated with the Atreides because yeah. he was in charge. He was the overseer. Yeah, for the handoff. Right. Uh, he was supposed to yeah, be cooperating. We can't
0: just kill him. And the Baron's like. Well, we're not going to kill him. He's going to have an accident. He's going to accidentally go out into the deep desert without his still suit on. (laughs) Obviously. However that happens. However that happens. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's what's going to happen. And so they take him out there, and he has this long, long, long scene, which really serves as both like world building and exposition.
1: This was a really elegant exposition dump. Yeah. Of him and... And still building on who Liet is.
0: Right, because we see his father. And there's more about his father in the appendices, but his father was an imperial... an imperial a, a
1: planetary uh, ecologist. Yeah,
0: who came to this planet in an attempt to terraform it. Um, and he ended up falling in with the Fremen, and he just talked so fucking much, they just kept him, because nobody could get him to shut up long enough to tell him he wasn't welcome, basically. And so Liet is the... Product of this man and a Fremen woman. And so Liette is like um, seeing his father, and his father is telling, like pontificating to us, the, the reader, and to Liette about his plans and how Arrakis could be changed. And,
1: and like a, a really deep understanding of the culture of the Fremen. And we get a sense from later in the book and from the appendices that until, um, until Liet's dad came, well, I forget what his name was. Uh, the, we'll just call him Liet's dad.
0: Yeah. Liet's dad.
1: Until Liet's dad came to Arrakis, the Fremen were just surviving and fighting the Harkonnens. And that was their, like, Purpose in life, but Liette's dad gave them a vision.
2: Pardot
0: kinds.
1: Hardot? Hardot. Pardot. Pardot. P A R D O T. Pardot. Or maybe Pardo.
0: Pardo. Pardo kinds.
1: Yeah. Um. There's a bunch of
0: Lièt's fr- dad.
1: Fran- French <laughs> references. Yeah. So I'm gonna say Pardo. Okay. Pardo. So Pardo came to Arrakis, and he's like, "I need to, you know, actually be out in the wild." to get a better feel for what would have to be done to actually transform this world, to actually terraform this world. And the people who are there, who would like get me access to that are the Fremen. So this is, this is my purpose yeah. is to terraform this planet, and I'll just do whatever's necessary to achieve that. Yeah, I have to get in with the Fremen. Great, I will be a Fremen, and so he does, and he takes a Fremen wife, and he
0: teaches them all he, kinds of stuff.
1: He teaches them. He comes up with an entire new, like, written language uh, to help teach them about all the ecology stuff,
0: about the moisture reclamation stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and gives their entire culture. A larger purpose. And that really like solidifies the entire Fremen culture. Yeah. And they've been living this way for 80 years now. Right. At least. Right.
0: Because they were like, how long is this going to take? And he was like, oh, a couple hundred years. And they were like.
1: At least. Okay. okay.
0: Then we will teach our children how to do it too.
1: Planting trees in whose shade they will never sit.
0: Exactly. And so Liette. He's kind of delirious because he's dehydrated. He's out in the middle of this desert. He ends up being out there without a still suit on. He's just hemorrhaging moisture. And he realizes he's on top of a pre-spice mass, which we haven't even talked about yet. So this is another exposition that just gets cleverly woven into this. Right.
1: Oh, what does a pre-spice mass mean? Right. Because, oh, it means it's about to explode.
0: Right. We haven't discussed where the spice comes from. At all. It just exists on the surface of the sand.
1: There's one line where Paul is questioning Liette when they're in the Thopter with Leto and everybody and just asking questions about the worms and everything. And he basically says, Oh, so what's the connections between what's the connection between the worms and the spice? And Liet's like, shit, I can't
0: there's a. Oh sorry. well, no, just a, oh, wow. kinda... Complex ecosystems <laughs> have then, lots and of then, interconnections. Yeah, and that's oof, couldn't say. Don't know. Yeah, we. I don't know. Bless the maker and his water. Bless a his lot passing. of the.
1: It's Make like passing cleanse the water. A lot of the details are unknown. Yeah. And Paul's like, "Hmm, my mother's level of truth sense. Yeah. would say that's true, but I'm picking up some bullshit here.
0: Yeah, there's some bullshit." There's some.
1: What's he hiding?
0: Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, that's it though. Up until this point, yes, And then he's that's like the only thing we like, hear about oh, the connection beneath me. The little makers are like running out of water, and they're like the fermentation of their waste and everything is getting ready to explode. It's getting ready to blow, so that these little makers, the ones that survive, will swim off to become shy halud. And you're like, oh. Okay, so the worm the spice is the worms, the worms are the spice. The
1: there worms make the spice.
0: There you go. Now you know. You didn't know and thanks and to the And the reason the spice shows know.
1: up as patches on top of the sand is because it all starts down deep, whatever. We we don't get much explanation on that. They until they have
0: they lay their eggs like long ago. Right. In a nest. Yeah. And
1: and the spice is there and then it all explodes upward. And when everything falls back down, the spice is on top. Yep. And that's where the spice patches come from.
0: Right. And that's how Liette dies. So we get all this beautiful little exposition. This yeah, he gets really buried in the cool sand. Just deftly included exposition.
1: And we get this really good line from Pardo. Uh, you read it just a minute ago.
0: Oh, Yeah. Because he's talking about the boy. Why did you help the boy? He's like, well, because he's the Lisa in Al-Gaib. He's the voice from the outer world. He will save us. And Pardo says, there is no more terrible disaster that could befall your people than for them to fall in the hands
1: of a hero. Which is heavy foreshadowing.
0: I mean, right there. Nail on the head. Pardo's that, like.
1: That is the start you have of made a mistake. the like, white savior critique. Yeah, This whole story is.
0: Yeah. There's literally nothing worse that could happen than for them to find their Messiah. Yep. So we'll just leave you with that. And then we move on. We go back. I mean, we we were jumping around quite a bit because there's a lot of characters that we're juggling just consistently. But what's happening in Paul land right now is they have kind of, they've wormed their way into a temporary truce. They're not really a part of the group, but they're not, not a part of the group anymore. And this is when Jamis is like, uh, I invoke the right of Amtal.
1: Like because there's all this chatter yeah. amongst the Fremen about Paul and Jessica being the ones who are going to fulfill this prophecy. Right. And some people just really want to know are you bullshitting us and yeah. manipulating us or are you actually the ones the prophecy speaks of? Yeah. And Stilgar's like, let's wait until we get back home. We'll take care of all this ritual stuff. We'll take care of all the particulars when we get there. But spending time on it now is a distraction. And the Harkonnens are on high alert. And we need to dip. And we need to GTFO. Yeah. But Jameis is a little hot-headed and impulsive. Yeah. And he he really needs to... To make some headway on this uncertainty. Plus
0: he just got disarmed by this boy man. And so he's got to reclaim oh, yes. he's, his honor. Not
1: only is he hot headed and impulsive, it's he's an also honor proud. Culture.
0: Yeah, it's an honor yeah. culture. So he's like, sorry, but um you gotta fight me now. And so Paul is like, um, all right. Okay.
1: And he's having one of these like prescient visions, and yeah. he's like Jessica sees him and she's like, Why he's so quiet? What's wrong? Is he, yeah, he's sifting is he worried, through futures. Is he worried about the outcome of this fight? Right. Because he could totally take this guy, no problem. But uh, what?
0: What was what, happening here?
1: And the she notices that her son seems to be in some distress, but she can't go help him. No, because Stilgar's like, nope. Uh, she tries to use the voice, and Stilgar's like, no fucking way.
2: Yeah. Do it again. See what happens.
1: I'm not a fool. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Try that again. And like these 20 Fremen around you are all going to kill you at the same time. You won't be able to stop them.
0: Right. Can you. Can you enchant all of us at the same time? I don't fucking think so. And so Paul's like, it's fine, Mom. Like, I got this. It's cool. Like, I, I've seen how this ends. It doesn't always end good for me, but it kind of mostly does. Well, he, so it's going to be fine. He,
1: isn't a, he doesn't have a chance to communicate any of that. Right. He's just sulking around. He's, he's walking around really sullen, like, very inward focused. And then he just starts taking off his clothes. And she's like, well, crap.
0: Here we go. Like
1: I've been working so hard to save him and now, and all of this like ability and influence that I've cultivated to maintain this environment to keep my son alive. Yeah. I've lost it all. And I just hope that all the work that I've put into preparing him makes him capable of Taking care of himself in right. this situation.
0: Yep. I got just hope. Uh, and it, I mean, it works out. It, although I do like the part where they're talking, where Paul mentions that, like, I'm actually not as good as this guy only because I have trained against fighting people wearing shields. Right. So my stabs are all like slow or delayed. I right. have to consciously force myself to move quickly.
1: Every other part of the fighting, he's better than Jameis. Yeah. Because he's been. Trained by the best since he could walk. Yeah. But he has this reflex, this conditioning, so that when he stabs, he stabs slower. Right. And so that's his main disadvantage. And so there's this big dramatic fight. And Stilgar's like, why is Paul toying with him? Like, this, this is a vain exercise uh I'm disappointed that Paul is so um, like self-centered that he's just playing with Jameis and in a performative way to make himself look better and Jessica's like, no he's he's never killed anyone before. Yeah. the hesitation that you're observing as him just playing with an inferior fighter he, it's hesitation because he doesn't want to kill this guy.
0: Right. And he actually says, do you yield? And they're like, uh, what? Fucking yield? I
1: think you misunderstand, And Paul. this is when
0: Stilgar's like, guys, he doesn't know our ways. Like, he just got here, okay? No, it ends with death. And so he does. He kills Jameis. And he is then entitled to his water, his wife, and his coffee service. <laughs> <laughs> Like, hot damn, I want to buy a nice enough coffee service that it becomes an heirloom item. Like, who's going to get mom's coffee service when she dies? And so they're going to, they extract the water from the body because the flesh belongs to the person, but the water belongs to the tribe. So they put him in whatever, dehydrator. And they're all kind of standing around. They put his, but like his belongings all in a his pile. All of his belongings in a pile. And yeah. they're like, yeah, he was my friend. I'm going to take his boots and his shoes and that really nice knife I gave him that one time. And he's like, yeah, he was my friend. I'm going to take his.
1: Well, well, one person stands up and does this. And then everybody looks at Paul.
2: Yeah. And, Paul's and Paul doesn't
1: like, do anything. And then the next person stands up and is like, I was a friend of Jameis. And... I'm going to take this belonging. And then everybody looks at Paul (laughs) and Jessica is still kind of being held back. Yeah. she, Like if she goes up and tells him what to do, it would undermine his position. Right. So he has to figure
0: this out. He is on his own. He has to figure this out. And so he's finally like, okay, um, I was a friend of Jamis, and, and everybody's like,
1: yay! You
2: did
0: it! And he's like, I'll take his balisette. Yep. And then he starts crying. And they're like, oh, he, he gives, gives water, water to, to the, the dead. dead. Oh, snap! He is the Lisan Al-Gaib because they don't even cry. Because water is so precious. They clot immediately. They don't bleed. And they don't cry. And they all look like wrung out sponges. We talk about that tons. His flesh is water fat. His flesh is like full of water. Don't worry, that'll end. Like right now you're only sweating because you have too much moisture in your body. Once you don't have enough moisture, your body will stop that sweating bullshit. You'll be well, fine. Well, you
1: sweat inside the still suit. Right. Uh, but you don't um, You do not do other things. Well, no,
0: uh, Jessica refers to it as like, it feels like there is a like barrier of moisture between my skin and the still suit because I'm sweating so profusely. Mm-hmm. And Stilgar's like, oh, oh no, no, don't oh, worry, you're gonna that yeah. you that'll cut down. Like once you get a little bit more dehydrated, you'll be fine. Yeah. And so he gets these water tokens because he doesn't actually physically get his water, but he gets the, the right water's to the in, water, like a reservoir. Right. So he gets the tokens and he goes to hand them to Chani. He's like, sorry, I don't know how to carry these yet because they. Oh right, because
1: yeah, she says, I'll teach you how to, you know. Prepare them so that you can have have them on you, and they won't jingle and give away your position.
0: Right, and so he gives. Them, he's like, "Chani, can you hold them in the meantime?" And everyone's like,
1: "Oh snap! Oh
0: snap!" And then again, Stilgar's like, "Guys, he just got here. He has absolutely no idea he what he just did." And
1: then Paul immediately realizes, "Oh shit! It's he, a courtship like, thing.
0: Oh god, that's like a I just asked her to marry me thing. Oh, so sorry." And then they take him down to like a moisture trap, like a reservoir. Where they have all of this water, and they give him an exact measurement of how much water Jami's had, and then they they put that in the reservoir, and they're like, "This is how much of his wa- of this water belongs to you." And they have like a water dipper. They have like someone whose specific job it is to like accurately measure that because they know down to the like drama meet drama leader or whatever. The exact amount
1: desolator, I think.
0: Yeah, the exact amount of water that is in this, and Paul's like, "Oh shit!" Once again, we have underestimated the Fremen.
1: Right, and they they say basically, "Oh yeah, this is just one of many of these reservoirs." Yeah,
0: we have many upon many. We have like you can't even conceive of how many of these we have all over the face of Arrakis because we are preparing to change the face of Arrakis. And then Paul's like, "Okay, all right." I've got to get in on this. And so they leave. And now it's Jessica's turn because now Paul has become a member of the tribe. They ask him what his name is going to be because he needs a tribe name. Yeah. And he's like, what's the name of that little mouse that I see hopping all over the place? Right.
1: And so he doesn't know that the mouse is Muad'Dib yeah. at this point. He's just trying to think of a name. He doesn't know that... He knows that they're going to call him Mu'adib. Yeah. But he doesn't know that that is going to be just his casual... Name his fremen name. Yeah. So he's just like, oh, I kind of like that mouse.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'll be
0: the, I'll be that. And they're like, oh, you mean Muad'Dib? And he's like, God damn it! <laughs> 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 I accidentally fulfilled the prophecy again. Shit. But that's his name, like his use name. But then he has, and I like how all name. the
1: names have so much meaning. Like yeah. their culture is so steeped in mythological significance. Everything is an omen or everything is a symbol for something else.
0: Yeah. It is the prophecy. Yeah. And then he has his in the siege name. His like my close friends. His private name. His private name. And that's Usl, which is the strength at the base of the pillar. He is the fulcrum on which everything tips. And... That's his name, and he actually gives Chani a name. He calls her Sahaya, S-I-A-H-A-Y-A. Sci- yeah. Sci-hi- <laughs> S- and it's the um, like a desert stream, like a a stream in the desert, a, a sense of relief after a long journey. Yeah, and because of course they don't get together. We know it. We knew it from page one. They're going to get together, and then they go on a journey. Because now it's Jessica's turn to cash in her chips. Paul has proved that his water belongs to the tribe and the water, the tribe deserves his water and he deserves yep. the tribe.
1: He, he's earned his place. Yeah. He's a member of the tribe. Yep. And, and now it's Stilgar time for... has recognized, oh, oh, you are a Sayedina. Yeah. Which is like a person in training to be the spiritual leader.
0: It's, it's almost the equivalent of a Reverend Mother. Like Reverend Mother Gaius Mohiam that we met. At well, the, the Sayadina
1: is what you do to train to become the Reverend Mother,
0: right? And he's like, so uh, well, you know, I have a place for you because he goes to talk to her. They get to the next place. She's standing watching the sunrise, and Stilgar comes in, and he's like, "So, we need to talk about how you bested me." And she's like, "Oh, like I didn't want to. I didn't mean anything by that. I don't want to like run the tribe or anything." Oh yeah. And he's like. Well, there's a couple ways we can save face here. And she's and, like, oh,
1: you want me to call you out?
0: Yeah, I, you can call me out and finish it. For leadership of the tribe. And finish it. You can marry me. I mean, you're not bad looking, so you could marry me. Or you can become the our Reverend Mother. Because our Reverend Mother is like old as shit.
1: Well, and, they, haven't, they haven't gotten that far. Like at this point, I don't even think they're back at Siege Tabor yet. Yeah. He's like, you can call me out can't No, this is when they're me. on
0: the journey. They're like, they're not quite there. Right. Th- they're, they're close enough that they can like, they'll make it tomorrow and they could yeah. make it if they went a little further, but day is coming. They have to hide. And they're like, this is when, this is when he has his talk with her. That's like, I know. And she realizes he knows people are listening and he's having this conversation as much for their benefit as right. he is for her. Right. And he basically proposes a solution, which is you become Cyadina, you become the Reverend Mother. All you have to do is this one little thing, no big deal, no biggie, going to be easy. And then you get to be a part of our tribe too. And because you're like separate but equal, we don't have to fight each other.
1: Right. It's separate separate roles, uh, separation of responsibilities in the leadership of the tribe. I got the sense that he didn't convey to her ahead of time what it – About being coming the Reverend Mother?
0: No, because they take their culture for granted. He
1: just says, "You can be like, you can call me out and take over leadership of the tribe. You can marry me, which might be fun.
2: Yeah, could Uh, be fun.
1: Or you can become a Sayadina, and you move laterally into a spiritual leadership position. Yeah." And she's like, okay, I'll be a Syedina, and they know about the Bene Gesserit, and they know that a lot of the the Syedina Reverend Mother stuff is parallel with the Bene Gesserit. and so she's already basically qualified to be a Syedina. Yeah, and he's like that, so that would be like an easy move for her to do. So that's why it's like. It, it's the second best option. Yeah, uh, it's
0: the least worst option. So the, the worst
1: option is calling him out
0: and killing him. the yeah.
1: The second best option for him is uh, her becoming Cydina. Yeah, yeah. So she's like, okay, I'll be Cydina.
0: Yeah, that sounds fine. And so they're all gonna they're gonna bring the Reverend Mother to the siege, which is she's so brittle. This is her last journey, so yeah. this has got to work out. And
1: they're all the entire siege, their city. Is moving south because the Harkonnens are on a rampage.
0: Yeah. So they got to do this now. Yeah. And so they bring her out. And this is when we get our our first look at kind of the depth of the spice technology in the way that the kind of accepted Lonsrod community has their um, their mentats and their Bene Gesserits and their accepted use of spice as a consciousness expanding thing, the Fremen have their own way of using it. And they have had this way of using it for generations and generations and for far longer than any other culture because they actually use the spice or like a derivative of the spice. As a building material. As a material for a component. transferring memory, actual physical memory.
1: Oh, oh. Yes, the yeah. reverend mother ceremony.
0: So the reverend mother is not just the reverend mother. She is every previous reverend mother that has ever existed. Whether it was from oral tradition, far enough back that they didn't have the spice, all the way to now where they use the spice to transfer memory. And not only that, but because they live in such close proximity with the spice, all of the Fremen are on a certain level psychically linked.
1: Right. And Paul, <coughs> Paul notices slash acknowledges that they all have some latent ability for like what he has, like his yeah. time sense um, that's been enhanced by the spice. Right. Is that they've been on Arrakis so long and like so aggressively bred that they are, I guess, so aggressively selected by the environment Yeah, that they have literally like evolved like adapted their biology has adapted to the environment so much that they are the equivalent of like force sensitive right an entire planet of force sensitive people
0: right yes and so what jessica ends up having to do is take in this water and at this point we don't know what this water is it's this water that she has to be that she's given and she realizes it's a poison and she has to change it
1: it's and, a poison and a drug,
0: right? Because well, once she changes it, it becomes a drug. Right. So she changes it, and it be, and she gives them just a drop of this catalyst that she creates, and so she ends up changing all of that water.
1: Right? She sp- basically spits it back in. Yeah. And this is all dependent on the. I think Chani calls it like the inner awareness or yeah, something like that. Yeah, she has to be able to identify the, the poison in her body. It's the body, body control yeah. that the Bene Gesserit have cultivated. This is something that the Mentats don't do. Right. This is something that's a skill that's specific to the Bene Gesserit where they are so in tune with their body. They are so aware of their body and they are so in control of every aspect of how their body operates that... She can inspect molecular structures yeah. using her body. And then, oh, I need to change this molecule in this way. And Paul kind of explains it later when he does it, that he makes his body produce specific compounds to respond to it yeah. and change it. Right. And so...
0: Like an she- immune reaction. Yes. Like a forced immune reaction. Yes. And that immune reaction in turn changes all the water in these jugs.
1: Right. It's a cascading reaction.
0: Right. And it also is a concentrated dose of the spice. So it gets her way, way high. Like high enough she can literally touch the mind of the other Reverend Mother. And the other Reverend Mother can pass all of that knowledge to her.
1: Well, I think it's part of the specialty of it is that the process of doing the transformation, transforming this poison into the drug, has separate side effects for the person doing it, as well as all of the extra training that uh, she's gone through as a Bene it gives her more capacity to um, react to it. Yeah. So everybody yeah, it
0: expands her already expanded consciousness. Right. So it's like but
1: to the point that she links with right. other people who have undergone the same. Right. Process. It
0: wouldn't work the same way for someone who wasn't trained. But because she is trained, it enhances her training. In the same way that not every man who got dumped on Arrakis was going to become like prescient. But because Paul had been trained in the way he had been trained. Right. It just lubricates the wheels to take him the rest of the way down this road that he's already mostly traveled. And so for the Reverend Mother, it's the same. and so Jessica and the Reverend Mother kind of commune and they she passes on the knowledge of the friend She
1: transfers like or copies her yeah. entire consciousness all of it all of her memories into Jessica but and that includes
0: but oh shit, Jessica's pregnant.
1: Oh yeah, and so Paul had noticed in the still tent, yeah, that Jessica was pregnant, right? Um, or uh, I don't think he noticed from observing her physically. He saw he knew it, in it the from his future sight. Yeah. And so, yeah, the Reverend Mother's consciousness is transferring into Jessica, and she's like, "What the fuck?" She's
0: like, "What you didn't fucking say anything?" And Jessica's like, "Well, I didn't know. I didn't like. I'm trying to save my son," and she's like. Oh my God, seriously? And so they end up having to give all of that same knowledge to her baby. So that's how Alia gets what they call preborn. So she gets the... not; She's literally born with the total amount of knowledge that her mother has, which is the total and amount of knowledge accumulated by the Fremen Re- Reverend Mothers.
1: For generations, the Reverend Mothers have been passing their entire consciousness and memory into... The next reverend mother. Yeah. And so Jessica describes it as this tunnel. Yeah. And the deeper you you go one step into the tunnel, it's uh, reverend mother Romalo. Yeah. And you take another step and it's the reverend mother before Romalo. Yeah. And you take another step and it's like the entire conscious experience of the next reverend mother. Right. Back in history. All the way back for thousands of years. Yeah,
0: back to when it was an oral tradition. And that's how we learned that they used to live on like a comfortable planet. And because they were on a comfortable planet, they didn't know how to fight.
1: And they were the Zen Sunni.
0: And so they got they got caught. They got captured, scooped up, and dumped on these other planets, including Salusa Secundus, which is the emperor's prison planet where he trains the Sardaukar. And then they were taken. They were honed for generations on that planet. Nine generations they stayed there and were sharpened like a knife. And then they were taken from there and to taken to other planets, including Arrakis. Right. So and
1: the planet they went to after Salusa Secundus is, or the second planet after the, in the appendices, there's like the multiple stages of the forced. Zensuni Fremen migration, whatever. And on Rosca, I think, they discovered this poison drug and their Cyadinas could take that in and transform it and have this whole psychic awakening transfer of memory and knowledge to the next Reverend Mother. And so when Jessica's looking back, she gets to like... This reverend mother and that reverend mother is like the first in the line. And then the memories of her her cultural memories are all the oral tradition that had been passed down.
2: Yeah. Yep.
1: And then the, the water of life that they find on Arrakis is like a better version of the-
0: What they were already doing.
1: The poison drug liquor- that they found on, that they discovered on Ruska.
0: Yep. I mean, it's, it's good. And it's basically telling us that the reason they're more badass than the, than the Sardukar is because they have been shaped to be warriors for like dozens of generations, if not more, they didn't just get dumped on Arrakis and had to figure it out. And that's what made them like,
1: they had already been shaped.
0: They had already been prepared to become this almost unstoppable fighting force. And then they were put on a planet that is even harder to survive
1: than then the Seleuza Emperor's Secundus. prison planet. And so and they explain later that Seleucia Secundus is um, Shaddam's prison planet, it's the seat of House Carino. Yeah. And nobody knows exactly where the Sardukar come from. Uh, but some, um, let's see. Fenring gives some hints, and then some other people talk about it, and they explain this way of doing it, where okay, you take a whole bunch of people and you put them in a really harsh environment, and the weak ones get killed, and they acknowledge that the like death rate of prisoners. On Seleucus Secundus is high, really high, really high, and so only the strongest survive just living there, and then from the survivors, you take the strongest and you uh, adopt them into this yeah. and you create Sardaukar culture, a, right. And you create this gonna say, you create fiercely a loyal, yeah, um, highly resilient fighting force. That has, yeah. You know, whatever horrible training you could put them through, it's not as bad as what they had to go through just to survive. Yeah. And Arrakis is even harder to survive on than Seleucus Acundus.
0: Yeah. And so the Fremen, after she's changed this water of life, she's how, figured out how to save Alia through all of this. And then... They all do what anybody would do when given a giant jug full of psychotropic drug, which is, hey, let's all get high and have an orgy.
1: Right. Romalo tells Jessica, she's like, let, let them, them have, have their, their, orgy. their orgy.
0: Like, life's hard enough.
1: And they all become, like, slightly psychically connected. Yeah. And it's real, real fun. And Paul's like, Chani comes to Paul. Yeah. And she's like, here, have some. And he's like, I really don't want to.
0: You know what? I already be, feel like I'm tripping balls. I don't want any more. Thanks be, ever so much.
1: He recognizes what it is and that if he has some, it will like untether him. Yeah. From the now. And he's not quite comfortable with doing that. He doesn't want to get lost. He's like everybody else is just tripping balls, having a great time. Yeah. I am going to be untethered from my Physical body. Yeah, I
0: could lose my entire thrust consciousness. Thrust into
1: yeah. the open future and forced to see <laughs> the entire landscape <laughs> of possibility. Yeah. Chani, you don't know what you're asking. Yeah. And she's like, no, no. Can you do it for me? Yeah, it's cool. And I'll he's be like, right here. okay, Chani, for you.
0: I know. He's like, <laughs> all right, fine. But she does take him out. She takes right. him out so because that he won't be sharing with everybody. She
1: recognizes that he's not comfortable with the, and that also, there's something. What off. would it
0: do to everyone if they share oh, yes. in his consciousness? Because she's
1: close to him. Yeah. I think she's had some. And so she, when she gets close to him, she can see what he's seeing. Yeah. And she's like, Oh, uh, I got to get you out of here. This yeah. would bring down the whole tone of the room. Yeah. <laughs> um, You're
0: bringing the mood down, man. I got to get
2: you out of
1: here. <laughs> We're going to get you some distance. Yeah. Um, and, and like, I can handle what what you're putting down, yeah, but and not everybody else, right, so just me and you we'll have this special moment. This will be a bonding experience for us, yeah, and like I think she can see his vision of her through his future sight, right, and so now she knows, oh, we're faded mates,
0: yeah, we're faded mates, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, We're, we've been together. I've lived an entire lifetime with you already. Multiple we, lifetimes. We've held hands. We've caressed in the siege. We've we've sat on the like rock and watched the sunrise. Like We have lived a life. We have had a child. And I have he,
1: told you of the waters of my home world.
0: Yeah, and he tells her, you're always going to be the strong one, so please don't leave my side. And she goes, don't worry, Muad'Dib, I won't. And that's the end of part two is we finally gotten we we introduced all the pieces in part 1. We moved all the pieces into position in part 2. And now now it's time for endgame. Yeah. Yeah, now it's time for all of the strategy that we set up in the first two to come to fruition. And that's part 3, the profit, which we will talk about in the third part of our Dune book series.
1: So, as a follow-up to this section of the book. Yeah. Uh Rachel and I. Rachel had asked me like where I was in the book, and so I was just summarizing the parts that I'd recently read, and so I was kind of reviewing like high level what what is the Fremen culture like, and what are what are the significant you know features of this society in the greater world, the the this universe, and I was like, oh yeah, it's kind of like the Aiel in the Wheel of Time.
0: Uh, yeah, it's exactly like the IEL and and the Wheel of Time. Wait, wait,
1: this is a spoiler alert. If
0: you haven't read the Wheel of Time, just go ahead and end the episode right now. We're not going to talk about Dune too much anymore. But this is a big spoiler for, like, a lot about what happens to the IEL and where they came from. So, get out while you still can. Yeah,
1: we're not going to discuss anything else about Dune. Yeah. But I, I wanted to explicate this a little bit.
0: Yeah, no, go for it.
1: And just the number of parallels. So... If you haven't read The Wheel of Time, um, you can just finish here, go to the next right, episode. Yes. Um, but if you don't mind some spoilers about Wheel of Time, or uh, you want to hear my, <laughs> I'm ready, <laughs> my whole spiel on on the similarities, uh, keep listening. Mm-hmm. So you have this society that lives in the desert. And they're extremely well adapted to the desert physically and culturally. They are a warrior culture that is extremely disciplined. Water is the most valuable resource. But they also have all of this prophecy yep. about a person that will come and lead them into a like revolution.
0: A time of plenty.
1: Yes. Right? Yeah. Yep. You, you will mean the re- Fremen? We're talking about the restore, Fremen,
2: right?
1: <laughs> He'll restore, uh, you know, the waste, yeah, the, the the desert land into a vital growing place, and this entire culture was founded um, to be the personal army for this person that comes that will lead them to the promised land. Mm. Mm. And this person knows the mythology, knows the um, the miracles that they have to fulfill. Yeah. He and will know
0: ha- their ways as if born to them?
1: Oh uh, no he so I'm the parallel is yeah, Randall yeah, I gotcha. Thor. No, no, I get uh, where
0: you're going. I was just making a joke. Yeah, oh, okay. that Randall yeah. Thor is Paul Muad'Dib. Right. He has yeah. to
1: go through trials. Yeah, where he experiences himself out of time, and <laughs> <laughs> and learns the entire past of this culture, hmm. and then, um, spoiler alert for the next Dune books, uh, leads this purpose-built army honed over centuries. To take over, like, millennia. hostile...
2: Honed
0: over millennia. Honed over
1: millennia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, leading them to a hostile overthrowing of the entire rest of the continent or universe.
2: Yeah. Yep.
0: And they also came from a culture that was just a regular culture.
1: Yeah, a peaceful culture in a soft land.
0: Yeah, that then experienced trauma, to which their reaction was, no one will ever be able to do that to us again. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And.
0: Hmm. Hmm. This is what I'm talking about. Frank Herbert sha- shaped his genre. Yeah.
1: And uh, yeah, I realized, so. wow, I didn't realize how much Robert Jordan just Lift and shift. Yeah, he was like <laughs> the, the just Fremen scratched out Fremen and
0: wrote Iel. They over even top have
1: it. all of this like Arabic, reminiscent language terminology yeah. language. Wow.
2: Yep.
0: Very very accurate. It's the same way that like Tolkien effectively invented like elves and dwarves.
1: The modern. The, the modern representation we see them of elves and dwarves. Yeah,
0: the way we see them now is basically yeah. what he created, so.
1: Yeah, and before that, there were lots of.
0: Little folk. Lots of think.
1: mythology yeah. about little people, elves and dwarves and whatever, but they were all different all across the world. Right. And he just made one interpretation of them that everybody was like, oh, this is, this is on point. This right. is what we're going to run with. So
0: for more pithy insights, please join us in part three, The Prophet, which will be coming out next week.
1: Maybe. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what the release schedule is. I don't,
0: you don't have any part of this, so don't maybe me. I, I you hel- just show I up. helped you, you talk.
1: draw out all the...
0: You did. The you items
1: did. in the you the did. deep cut.
0: You did. You show up, you talk, you and have a good time, and then you let me do all the rest of the work. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I don't, I mean, this is my full-time job. Yes. Yeah. As, as, well, however you want to take that. This is what I do for fun. So it's fine. It's your hobby. Um, it's my hobby. So yeah, that, this is the end of part three of the. Part two. Part two. Sorry. You cut me all off. Okay. Let me start off. Over. So this is a wrap on part two. So for more pithy. Uh, For more pithy commentary on Dune, please tune into part three of the Dune book, which will conclude the book and then we'll be off to the races talking about all the movies, which I am absolutely stoked about because I did not know how absolutely off the rails Jodorowsky's Dune was going to be. And I now feel existential dread that I live in a world where it didn't come to fruition and I don't get to just go watch a 14 hour long Dune adaptation. That has uh,
1: Salvador Dali, Salvador Dali, Padishah <laughs> Emperor Shaddam the Fourth.
0: Yeah, so if you're intrigued by that, and, and I hope Mick you are, Jagger has <laughs> faded. <laughs> listen, save it for the pod. We are going to talk about that and more when we finally get to the adaptations. But we got one more part of Dune to get through, and I'm looking forward to talking about it because it's really where most of the action in the novel happens. Yep. So tune in next week, and we'll be talking about that. Until next time, friends. Bye.
2: Bye.